Welcome back to the second episode of Origins and Evolution. Today, we'll start by covering what to expect in the current stage of our search for extraterrestrial life. Specifically, if extraterrestrial life exists, how can the scientific community detect it? So, to start, our first question is for Dimitar. Can you please explain the sheer magnitude of both the Milky Way galaxy itself and the greater universe? Thank you. Yes, it is a big place. Our galaxy and the universe is even bigger. People usually think of our galaxy as that large home of stars. We astronomers have uh, measured now that the galaxy consists of about 250 to 300 billion stars. 300 billion stars, give or take. Give or take. <laughs> uh, it's always like that in astronomy. Now, how many galaxies are out there? About the same number, which is kind of easy to remember for the freshman student. Uh, about 300 billion. I, when it comes to the Milky Way galaxy and the number of stars in it, we know that number pretty well. When it comes to the galaxies in the observable universe, we have to say observable universe. What we actually see with our telescopes up to a level which we call the horizon is what we can measure and where statistically we determine there are about 300 billion galaxies, similar to ours. Again, give or take. Galaxies come in different sizes. Some are much bigger than ours and many are smaller than ours. Ours is kind of middle of the road. So how many stars in the universe? Well, 300 times 300 billion. Big number. How many exoplanets is a different question uh, that we didn't know until recently. Since the end of the Kepler mission for the last five years, in the history of human science, we can say that every star in, an, in our galaxy has on average one planet. And in fact, most stars have many planets. So the conclusion is that there are more planets in our galaxy than there are stars. An extremely uh, important follow-up question is, what percent of exoplanets would you say might be habitable? Ah, uh -huh. now we, we get into the really interesting stuff. Okay, so what do we call a habitable planet? Our Earth, planet Earth, is a habitable planet for two reasons. We defined habitability in Earth-like terms as a planet which is at the right distance from the star. Some people call it the Goldilocks zone, the habitable zone. So it's not too close to be too hot and water has to be liquid on the surface. So if you're closer than Venus or even Venus, water simply evaporates, too hot. And water shouldn't be fully frozen on the surface. If there is no atmosphere or if you're far away like Pluto, you're always frozen. So if you take this as habitable, as planets, rocky planets in that zone around its star, about 15 to 20% of all stars with exoplanets have at least one habitable planet. This is a huge number, 15 to 20% of about 10 billion in the galaxy. Now, of course, Dimitar, what do you think? What is your speculation? Because none of us know yet what percentage of those habitable range planets is your guess might have some very basic form of life. 
Very good question, Frank. So another big uh, topic for discussion. Habitable tells you that life as we know it can exist in a sustainable form for many, many years. Geological timescales should be millions and billions of years. But is this also the environment that is conducive to the emergence of life? So this may be two different points. So number one, is this where life actually emerged? Or is this where life thrives? So when we say habitable, we usually refer exactly to the common sense meaning of the word habitable. I'm already alive. I was born and I can live on that planet. But is that planet, was that planet before there was life on it? Was that planet prebiotically plausible? Could life emerge on it? That is still a question mark and science is busily working to figure it out. I'm glad you're making the differentiation, Dimitar, because uh, the irony on Earth is today on Earth is clearly habitable, but by today's standard of life needing oxygen, Earth actually wasn't habitable four billion years ago. It had no oxygen. Life has transformed our planet so fundamentally and, and added oxygen to the atmosphere. Conversely, the way that we discussed it in our first episode, that life arose and evolvability and first protocells evolved on Earth, today couldn't happen anymore because of the oxygen, because of the reactive atmosphere. And, and last but not least, I would add um, that um, some planets may have been habitable. Perhaps Mars was habitable at some point. It may have had an atmosphere. It probably was too small to, lo to, to lose its atmosphere. And there might have been other reasons that I've become aware of from you recently, Dimitar. You said every once in a while this thing called a heliosphere contracts and may have exposed Mars to harsh radiation. Could, could you comment on what that could be in the example of a, a planet that's very dear to us, namely a nearest neighbor, our good old Mars? Yeah, and the green good, Martians on it. Uh, our good old Mars. Mars is very harsh environment today, on the surface, I should say, uh, mostly because of uh, cosmic ray and other radiation. These are high energy particles, which today are mostly coming from the sun, solar eruptions on the surface of Mars, but a certain fraction comes from the galaxy. And so we are protected by the magnetosphere heliosphere of the sun to some extent by many of those cosmic rays. And during the history of the galaxy and the history of our solar system going around the center of the galaxy, the radius of the heliosphere can change dramatically, can shrink in particular, and sometimes as close as the orbit of the Earth. That exposes Mars. Of course, uh, one of the biggest exposures uh, today for the surface of Mars is the lack of atmosphere. The bottom line is, as you pointed out, this is one of the reasons why we couldn't imagine chemically complex life made of large complex molecules like proteins and nucleic acids on the surface of Mars today. But what if 
life started on Mars and then literally hid under the surface. Can you imagine, uh, Frank, something like this on Absolutely. Mars? Absolutely. That's why I think such an, uh, a, a mission to Mars that digs under the surface and, and looks for methane or other biosignatures that, that we know are available there. They may not have a biological or biotic origin. We don't know that. But we know there's methane on Mars and it changes during the seasons. It, there's more methane coming out of the surface of Mars in the Martian summer. Is that biotic origin? Was that from life that may have existed on, on Mars a billion years ago or that may still be surviving in some potential oceans under the frozen surface of Mars? We don't know, but it's clearly the best shot we have of finding extraterrestrial life would be in our solar system. And maybe I would think uh, from my read of evolution, you, as Dimitar has said, you clearly need billions of years of a planet being in the habitable zone for life, for any form of advanced life, perhaps even eukaryotic or multicellular life to evolve because the initial phases and stages of evolution are painfully slow, even if life arises. And ultimately, what are the chances of life arising on a habitable planets if you have the right combination of elements and uh, precursor feedstock molecules, something Dimitar and his Origins of Life initiative and colleagues are studying? It is still anybody's guess. And I'm sort of the optimist here. I think life under the right non-equilibrium conditions may almost be a universal phenomenon. It might be inevitable. It may have had multiple origins of life on Earth rather than the one low probability, one in a billion occurrence. But it's a belief. I don't know that for a fact. It we could be have, that... Yeah. We don't have the uh, lab data for that. You're absolutely right. It is uh, our hunch and what motivates us to find the right answer. Exactly. It would also be a scientific result if we finally determine in a few decades that no life could ever arise anywhere else. We're objective scientists, but we would be a little bit bummed if there was no yes. life out there because that's kind of the more exciting results than the null result. Hey, we've proven with a following certainty or error bars that there is no life. So I, I'm pretty optimistic that life is almost inevitable, but it could also be rare. Now, what does rare mean and what does that imply for us finding it? If it's 1%, well, you take 1% of 250, 300 billion exoplanets with 10% or so in the habitable zone. Wow, there's a lot of life in our galaxy. Absolutely. You take one in a million, there's still a lot of life in our galaxy. You take one in a billion, now it gets shaky. There might only be three planets in our galaxy or, or maybe a percentage of that. Now, might maybe, maybe there is the needle of the needle in the haystack problem and we're one of a handful of planets, exoplanets in our galaxy, in which case we'll mean to be the bearer of bad news, but we pretty much can only observe and, and ever hope to ex uh, observe by physics known today and technology known today. This could all change in the future, although the physics may not change. The technology certainly will advance. We can only see this little, little corner of our galaxy. We can observe more astronomically, but looking for habitable range planets with biosignatures, 
we can maybe look 50 to 100 light years out in a galaxy that is 150,000 to 200,000 light years wide. You do the math. It's a simple scaling argument. We can observe and search for life in about one millionth of our galaxy. Forget other galaxies. And that's going to be true for many, many more decades and, and maybe almost permanently. So it's not that we can just look. We can find a lot of exoplanets and and we have one of the pioneers of that. I think you still hold the long distance record of finding an exoplanet the furthest away, but finding life on them. We can only see one millionth of our galaxy to see whether there is life, even if it's out there and there might be tens or hundred thousands of planets in our galaxy with life, we may never find them. And if they're in other galaxies, you know, we're waiting all for that Star Trek hyperdrive acceleration. And I'm so used to it from all the Star Treks and Star Wars movies that I think that ought to be out there. But it ain't. It, it, it's not available with present physics. So, uh, Dimitar, tell us about your world record, galactic record, I should say, of finding exoplanets, at least detecting them the furthest away from our solar system. Well, Frank, uh, uh, sometimes in astronomy, it makes sense to detect the most distant galaxy or the most distant what have you. In this case, it doesn't really mean much to me, at least. Uh, the way it happened was uh, 10 years ago, we were playing with a new technique. It was a technique which was, did I say 10 years ago? Yeah. It was 20 years ago. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> 20 years ago, we were playing with a new technique, uh, which was the technique of uh, transit, uh, transiting method. And at the time, the largest database for this kind of potential transits of planets was all the way towards the center of our galaxy. So it was a matter of having a large database to work with, this was the only large database available. My team used it, and voila, we found the planet. It happens, it was also the furthest away, but that was just because we were using a very distant database. Can you explain the transit process real quick for the people at home? Absolutely, yes. The transit method is um, bears its name for from a phenomenon which was well-known to um, people in the Middle Ages, the transits of Venus and Mercury. Venus and Mercury are two planets in the solar system that are with orbits closer to the Sun than the Earth. So occasionally, for an observer from the Earth, you can see the dark shadow or the dark silhouette, is the better way to call it, not a shadow, of Venus or Mercury projected on the bright, shiny disk of the Sun. And that lasts a short period of time, several hours. And the phenomenon, which is quite rare, is called the transit. So when the first exoplanets were discovered, people thought, oh, why not try to detect that phenomenon for distant exoplanets? Sure enough, you have to have the right geometry. You have to be aligned with the plane of the orbit. So every time the planet comes in between us, as observers, and its whole star, which is, of course, far away, they have to be in the same plane of sight. So the, the planet has to come right in front. We quickly calculated that, yeah, that's a rare occurrence, but it's not one in a million. It's actually one to two percent probability. 
which is pretty often, you know. And so if you, in other words, if you observe a few hundred stars and all of them have planets, you're likely to find one or two transiting planets. And um, that's exactly what happened. Today, the transiting method, as it's called, is the main, most significant and most important method of discovering exoplanets. Is it common that you ever find multiple transits for the same star or due to the probability is that extremely rare? We thought naively that it will be extremely rare. In fact, I'm partially responsible for making that false statement in the proposal for (laughs) (laughs) our big mission, which basically taking the solar system as an example, because we didn't know of any other planetary systems, and saying, well, if we take that uh, solar system being kind of the standard, then we'll have maybe a handful of such multiple transiting planetary systems. Instead, we found 500. So, and the list is growing. So it turned out that Mother Nature does it much better than we could imagine. So they're very common and they're extremely exciting systems. We talked last time about the transiting exoplanet system around a nearby faint star, which is called TRAPPIST-1, which has seven planets. And three of those seven planets are in in the habitable zone. We could potentially study them to look for biosignatures on those planets. This is a planetary system which has seven transiting planets. All seven of them pass between the star and us, and we see those transits every time they uh, they pass in front. Most planetary systems, just like our solar system, are probably in one flat disk. So if one planet's aligned, the others will be aligned too. Uh, maybe. Or is that even a universal? Uh, and Frank, uh, Frank, you are absolutely right about that. And it tells us something very important about how planets form. They all form in a disk of gas and dust. And then their orbits remain, usually remain in that same plane. And that is uh, the solar system. In fact, that is the famous Kant Laplace theory of planet formation, or as they said at the time of how the solar system came to be. And that's the same Immanuel Kant, who is known for philosophy, but his first work was in astronomy. However, this is exactly where we didn't do the calculation right. We took the solar system with its light deviations in those orbital inclinations. So the orbits are not perfectly in the same plane. It's maybe one, two degrees off. And then you project that on the sky in terms of transits. And the numbers doesn't, don't add up to many trans, multiple transiting planets. It turns out that in the galaxy out there, there are a lot of planetary systems, and TRAPPIST-1 is one of them, where the mutual inclinations of the orbits of the planets are even flatter, many times flatter than in the solar system, believe it or not. It's good to be lucky. It's good to be yes. lucky. Sometimes in science, how how exciting, yeah. I uh, was just going to add, again, from my evolutionary perspective, that if there is life and if we can find life or signatures of life, I think one will have to admit that if we find biosignatures of life, they will not prove that there is life on those exoplanets. They just give us a, a screen 
a higher probability that life might exist, but there are other potentially alternative explanations of why a signature of gases like methane or oxygen are strongly suggestive of life on those planets or maybe former life on those planets, but it is not proof positive. So one of these days will... Well, we won't be going there anytime soon. That's maybe for another episode. But we, at some point, if we're patient enough, um, may end up sending unmanned missions all the way out there. Of course, we'll have to accelerate them so they ever get there. Still will take a very, very long time. Before I set up another question for Dimitar, I just wanted to point out that if life exists and the surface conditions change, a planet may no longer be habitable at the surface, perhaps because it loses its atmosphere or it gets wiped out by solar radiation. Life could persist. Life does persist deep inside our Earth. It's amazing to see what extremophiles we have found and how deep those extremophile bacteria and spores go in our planet to where if our atmosphere was wiped out, well, We'd be gone, but we would certainly, life would survive with the right temperature conditions and the protection of being miles and miles underground for probably millions of years. In addition, there are extremophile bacteria that we find in the upper atmosphere. Extremophile bacteria and their spores, and these days, pretty relevant, probably not viruses. Viruses are a little bit more fragile, thank goodness, at least viruses as we know them. They're a big problem, as we all know, during COVID-19, but they probably can't do interstellar or even interplanetary disk travel. But there are extremophiles, bacteria and spores, where one could absolutely imagine that they could travel from Earth to Mars or from Mars to Earth. And there are some people that speculate that they may be pervading our galaxy and there could be spores that really do interstellar travel within our galaxy. That is speculative, but one shouldn't rule it out anymore. Frank, can you briefly explain what an extremophile is? Good idea. An extremophile are bacteria or their spores that can, in a unicellular organism in any case, that can... Ex- then can live under extreme conditions of pressure or vacuum, if you think about space, that can live and persist, or at least temporarily exist without growth and without metabolism for at extremely cold and also remarkably hot temperatures. So the range of temperature conditions and pressure or even vacuum conditions at which life can survive or survive as a spore, and then once it finds a more fertile environment, can regrow, is astounding, which is why we have to be sure that we're not contaminating, well, the moon or Mars or other moons of Saturn or Jupiter when we land there. And even more importantly, in our best self-interest, we have to make sure we're not contaminating Earth, by bringing potential former life forms back from Mars, there are scenarios where something like this could be a real threat, and our immune system surely wouldn't be trained against it. Um, So it's best to study things in situ and be a little bit careful before you bring things back, contaminate Earth, or extremophile bacteria or spores 
to contaminate potential other ecosystems and, and, and wipe out or destroy life there. Frank, this is a very good point for many reasons. Uh, the first reason is when we talk about exploration of Mars. It's also good to tell our listeners that a lot of these extremophiles were discovered in the last 20 years. Some are still being discovered. People are amazed of uh, the extreme environments in which they discover bacteria and archaea these days. And what is important to realize is that back in the 60s and 70s, when we first started exploring Mars, some of these extremophiles were not known to exist. And the way our instruments were sanitized, so to say, by making sure we do not contaminate Mars, was by today's standards inadequate because it was, for example, not known that some of extremophiles can exist under radiation conditions which are thousands of times higher than the radiation levels that are lethal to normal bacteria or to normal life, period. Or desiccation, low, which means low amount of water or high acidity or low temperature or any other extreme conditions, which actually is a point I wanted to ask you, Frank, about. We discussed about discovering life on exoplanets, and it occurs to me, as you're talking about extremophile bacteria, microbes that are extremophiles, that one thing which is defining extremophiles quite often is that they take advantage of very little of the environment and they release very little into the environment. So could you imagine a whole biosphere in the subsurface of Mars, which is doing fine, but is exchanging very little with the surface? In other words, it's not producing copious amount of gases and products that we could see. Because extremophiles are usually this kind of creatures, if we could call them creatures. What do you think about that? Crypto... Biosphere. A cryptobiosphere, yes, that, that compounds the problem of detecting it, as you've pointed out. Here on Earth, the extremophiles that live many, many miles underground or underneath the seafloor, they don't know what a day is, they don't know what a year is. There is no impact or only extremely, extremely indirect impact on the daily and monthly and, and annual rhythms that we surface creatures are used to. So... Some of these cells might be dormant with essentially no metabolism. They might hibernate for hundreds of years. They might divide once every few years or once every few hundred years. So it's hard to imagine. But indeed, as you've said, if there were extremophiles that had very little residual metabolism underneath Mars or maybe on Titan or one of the other rocky moons that are almost as big as Earth that that go around the big gaseous planets, uh, Jupiter and and Saturn, they're very cold. They have methane ice and rocks on the surface. We discussed that last time. But you never know. You know, underneath there might be volcanic activity. There might be heat sources. There might be extremophiles in, in life may have independently developed there. It's a lower probability than on a nice Earth with liquid water, but it's not impossible. Just because we cannot readily imagine it doesn't mean it's not exist, and we've surprised, been surprised before. But to answer your question, that gets 
orders of magnitude more difficult to, to, to detect. We're, we're thinking about bacteria that are prolific dividers, and every 20 minutes there's a new, they've doubled again, and they have lots and lots of biogases as an output, and they consume oxygen and what, whatnot, right? Or um, if they uh, use photosynthesis, maybe they create oxygen, and that would be a signature as well if they're plant-like. But this could be very difficult, in which case we would have to drill really, really deep and not just do a few surface measurements or scratch the surface of Mars or of one of these moons. Just before we fly there once and look around a little bit and, and, and dig a few inches deep, we may have to go and dig many miles deep on Mars at some point, and that's probably not going to happen in the next 10 years. Yeah, and I think um, what you said makes very important sense to the search for life on exoplanets, because if it is indeed true that life is common, it still doesn't mean that will be able to detect it. If, say, 90% of the living biospheres are ones that have adapted to the very harsh astrophysical conditions, which we have to admit are more common than the clement and long-term climate on planet Earth, then life is everywhere but nowhere to be found. And that will be a very tough search. I think we should finish with your star shot because at some point we're going to look for look, look to some other planets and you and some colleagues have developed or conceptualized some some very clever technology of um, not sending humans anywhere anytime soon but maybe having sensors and and unmanned exploration can you talk a little bit about something that you showed me in your in your office at some point about a micro drone that's going to fly to nearby Ah, planets. yes, yes. Uh, well, the search for life goes on to the nearest stars. Well, it's uh, 2020 is an important year in many ways. In less than a month, in the end of July, the Mars 2020 lab and Perseverance rover are going to launch let's hope, successfully from Cape Canaveral going to Mars for the first exploration of and search for life on Mars since 1976. And so that is a direct search. What can we do in those same terms when we search for life on exoplanets? Not biosignatures, not gases that are released in the atmosphere of those distant planets, but direct images, direct spectroscopy of those planets. Well, the nearest habitable planet seems to be right next door, around Proxima Centauri, four and a change light years away from us. And so four light years away means any signal, any image will take four years to come. Not too shabby, we can wait for four years, but how do we get there? We can't get there with a chemical engine, a rocket uh, fuel and rocket engine. It will take too long, hundreds of thousands of years and longer. So how about riding on a laser beam? So the Breakthrough Starshot is an initiative, international initiative, but based in California. And um, some of my colleagues are very much involved in it, of making really small miniaturized spacecraft using the extremely fast developing technology that we use in our smartphones. 
Miniaturized is important because they're light, but they can still take pictures and send them back home. Then you have to accelerate those small spacecraft the fraction of the speed of light. Well, not to the speed of light. You can't do that unless you vaporize them. But let's say to a quarter of the speed of light. Then they will reach Proxima in 20 years. And how do you do that? Well, there is a lot of development into building very powerful lasers. And the laser beam can literally propel a small nanosatellite over virtually 30 minutes to a speed which is a quarter of the speed of light. Uh, we don't have those lasers yet, but they're within technical reach. And if that works, and people are working hard on developing them, then 20 years to get there, four years to get the image back, in 25 years, we'll have a picture. Could be a blurry picture. How are you going to slow them down? In fact, you could slow them down. Proxima Centauri is the third star of a three-star system. So there is A and B, that are two very bright stars. From Australia, you can see them. They are a binary system of stars similar to the sun. Proxima is a smaller star that is closer to us than those two, the pair, but it actually orbits the pair, so they're a triple system. So the planet that we're interested in is around the small star, Proxima. So you send the probes moving really fast towards Proxima, but actually you send them towards the binary star, and you use the binary star uh, gravitational pull to slow down the, the spacecraft and turn them back into the orbit of Proxima. So it's doable, Frank. So, you can do it. An inverse slingshot. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's probably all we have for today. Great. And that'll, for the most part, conclude our second episode. Uh, thank you so much, Frank and Dimitar. That was incredibly informative. And it kind of will serve as a base for the third episode, which I know we teased at the end of the first episode, the Fermi Paradox. And that will be coming up next time uh, for the third Origins and Evolution podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. And next time we return, we will get to the Fermi Paradox. Thanks. Thanks.